for many years I've tried to preach systematically verse by verse through the Bible and I would go term and term around Old Testament and then return to the New Testament and then back to the Old Testament wherever I'd got to last time. However, during the pandemic I thought it'd be a good idea to do John's Gospel and then I got so into it I didn't want to go back into the Old Testament and I thought it would just take me a few more weeks to finish it and that was two and a half years ago and we have finally finished John. Tonight is the last sermon in John's gospel and next week we're going to go back into the Old Testament back to where we were before you may remember we were looking at Ezra and we're going to look at Nehemiah uh, the, the, the <laughs> I love saying that he was a very little man he was just Nehemiah uh, he wasn't Nehemiah actually somebody was telling me um, no I won't say I'll say that for next week so I learned something new uh, this week that I didn't know. Many of you are far more intelligent than me, so you probably knew this, but I didn't know it. I found out why people put wreaths, circular groups of flowers, on a coffin or a front door, but makes go for a coffin or the uh, cenotaph. Remembrance Sunday. Why this sort of semicircle of flowers? And, and I didn't know why that happens. People have different theories, but the most uh, uh, tested theory, some of you will know in the Greek Roman times the importance of athletics, the Olympic Games. And when someone won an event, a wreath, perhaps a laurel wreath, was put around them and they were awarded that as the winner. And in the uh, Roman Empire, as Christianity took hold after the resurrection of Jesus, when a Christian died, they would place, the Christians, the church, would place a victory wreath on the grave because they had finished the race and won. And they were going on to a better life. And I thought that is really cool. That has lasted all these years. And people put a wreath and don't know why they do it. We're going to think about finishing the race this evening. What does it mean to finish our race? Uh, Peter... Uh, if you were with us last week, we were looking at how Jesus restores Simon Peter by uh, reenacting various memories that help him deal with his failure. He denied him three times. And then in this event that we looked at last week, it comes at the uh, after Jesus is risen from the dead and they're fishing and he, uh, Jesus appears to some of the disciples. And three times... Jesus asks Simon if he loves him. And we talked about what it means to love Jesus. And I want to just remind you of that. Because it's a phrase we can say, oh, I love Jesus. But what does that mean? And I want to suggest maybe three things for tonight. There may be other things that you would put into that. But I want to suggest three things about loving Jesus. To love Jesus is to love what he's about. And what he's about 
is mercy and grace. It is to love the fact that he takes the broken, those who have messed up in life, those who have uh, broken lives, those who have sinned. He takes them and through forgiveness, through mercy, through overwhelming, undeserved, amazing grace, he transforms. To love Jesus is to love that ministry. It's to go, I'm really, really on board with transforming lives through forgiveness. And the second part of loving Jesus is to love his command to us, his instruction, his commission to go and to love our neighbor as ourselves and to even to love our enemies. And throughout John's gospel, there is this repetition of this command to love. And if we love Jesus and we go, that's really what I'm about. I really want to be a person that loves. It's not a feeling, it's an action. It's a decision, it's a choice, it's a way of behaving that blesses and encourages and builds up people. And so love Jesus to go, that's what I want to do in my life. I don't necessarily know what it looks like, I don't necessarily feel I'm any good at it, but I want to be a person that blesses and encourages others. And by doing so, to love Jesus is to love to bring in that kingdom, to bring in this new way of living, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of of, God. Compassion, of grace, of generosity, of truth. And when Jesus asks him, Simon Peter, three times to reenact the three times that he's denied him earlier before the crucifixion, he then commissions him. And last week, we looked at the, the last part of that commission. He said to him, follow me. And we talked about following means to copy and to obey Jesus. But we missed out verses 18 and 19. That's what the, the screen said last week. And now, I said we would come back to it. We're going to come back to uh, verses 18 and 19 and what was missing. And this is what was missing. Very truly, this is important, Jesus, says, I really want you to hear this. I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Now, some people reckon that Jesus is quoting a proverb about old age. And it may be that some of you who may be a little bit older recognize that thing that when you were younger, you dressed yourself. And maybe as you get older, as we care for elderly folks, and we, we, we have elderly parents or grandparents, we recognize that they have to be dressed. Um, or it, it, it may be that as a man you're married and you recognize that before you were married you chose your own clothes and after you got married um, you recognize that you're not allowed to go out in certain things anymore. I don't know. But anyway, there was perhaps a proverb. But even if there was a proverb, Jesus adapts it. And he adra- adapts it because it's clear that he's talking about imprisonments. Although you won't be able to dress yourself, he says you will stretch out your hands and you'll be led to where you do not want to go. He's saying, Peter, you're going to die. He confirms this. John confirms confirms this. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. The most common understanding of Peter's life is that he was martyred and that he was probably crucified. They didn't live into old age or die naturally. 
And Jesus is saying to Peter, I want you to follow me, but it's not going to be easy. I want you to have a role. I want you to be the rock, the Peter on which I build the church, but you are going to have it tough. And he says, this is the kind of death, John tells us, by which Peter would glorify God. And that phrase has has struck me. How on earth does death glorify? What does it mean to glorify God? Well, to glorify means to make more visible, to increase people's awareness of the goodness and power of God. It is to be like a magnifying glass, to take what is inherently there, but to show it to other people who otherwise wouldn't see it. So when we talk about glorifying God, we are saying uh, that we, by our lives, make what we know about God to be more visible to other people. How would death do that? How would crucifixion glorify God? How on earth does martyrdom glorify God? I think it's because a disciple who does not renounce or compromise in the face of death. And we know that there were those who backed down and said, no, I don't, I'm not going to follow Jesus. I proclaim Caesar as my Lord. And they avoided martyrdom for that reason. They avoided being thrown to the lions or the gladiators or being crucified or stoned or whatever it is. We know that there were people, some who renounced, but there were many who didn't. And a disciple who in the face of death maintains a faith, that becomes a model. And it becomes an inspiration and it becomes an encouragement to others. Because it makes those who are watching think, I can do, I can have a faith like that. What is it about that person that in the face of death, they remain resolute. And we know that the church grew rapidly through persecution, that the more disciples were prepared to say, I'm prepared to die for this, you can say what you like, but Jesus is Lord, the more Christianity grew. And so God was glorified by Peter's commitment because other people would go, if Peter can do it, I can do it. And if Peter believes, I will believe. And so the disciple who does not renounce or compromise models, inspires, and encourages faith in the truth of the message and in the prevailing love of God, that God's love will prevail and in an afterlife. And then he said to Peter, follow me. Will you copy me? Will you obey me when it is difficult? When death is right in front of you? When you've no longer got control of your life? When you are bound and forced to wear what you don't want to wear and you go out to your death, will you still follow me? And will we love him and follow him when it is difficult? We asked this question last week and I'm I'm bringing us back to it. 
Will we love grace and mercy when we resent the people that God forgives, when we're nervous of the people he brings into church, when we feel that people are are not as good as we want them to be? Will we love Jesus when the command to others, to love others is hard and we're exhausted and we're in a wilderness where we see no fruit and God isn't answering our prayer and it all is difficult? I'll show you a cartoon. It's easy to come and go. The hard thing is to remain. Now, I know that lots of you will recognize that that's been a bit of a mantra for me. It's hard. Sometimes we just go, well, I'll move on to the next thing. I'll, I'll change church. I'll change job. I'll change relationship. We will love Jesus when the people who's called us to love are difficult. He says to Peter, I want you to follow me. Do you really love me? Because you're going to die for this. Will we love and serve his kingdom when we're attacked, when we're in the wilderness, when we're unthanked, when we're blamed? Will we copy and will we obey? Lots of you will know that uh, just a couple of months ago, and and I'm so grateful for the support and care that you've expressed, but just a couple of months ago, I was uh, with my mother, aged 95 and and three days, as she died. And I've thought a lot about the question, how might death glorify God? How might the death, my death, our death, death of my mum, how does it glorify God? How does it magnify the goodness of God? How might we die well? I had the tremendous privilege of being with my mum as she died well. She was ready. She was looking forward to it. And I know that for lots of us, we're in different places when we think about death. And there is pain. Maybe fear and anxiety about how we might die and the pain of illness or who we might leave behind. So many of us have experienced bereavement and grief and it's difficult and there's loss and there's absence and there's tragedy and all of that is so painful. So I consider it a great privilege to have been with a lady who had longed to be with Jesus for years. And she modeled a way of dying. How might we glorify, model, inspire, and encourage faith in others? Another cartoon for you. Every time I offer them an upgrade, they click, not now. Do we model running away from death. Now, some of us will go, some of us are uh, of an age where we think we're not going to die. That happens to other people. But that's unlikely. And some of us click, not now, Jesus. Not now. 
there is an adaptation of the, the poem, Death is Not Extinguishing the Light for the Christian. It is putting out the lamp because the dawn has come. And William Willimon says this. He says, nobody has yet created a way to make life last forever. You and I will die, so we might as well get on with it. And the only really pressing business there is, is figuring out how to, how to die well. And as I observed and think about my mum, she died well because it wasn't what she thought about that week. It was actually what she prepared for for over 50 years. She prepared it in her plans and her will and her thoughts, but emotionally she prepared for it. If religion can help with that, it's interesting. If it can't, it is bland as a bowl of wet, cold oat bran. If we're going to die well, we prepare now. Even if it's 50, 60 years away, we prepare now. So how might our deaths glorify God? We prepare with expectation, not fear. It is not the darkness, it is the dawn. The process of dying may be painful and difficult and we may feel regret and guilt because we leave people but we will be going somewhere better. We may fear how we die, but let us not fear what comes next. Because that is the very essence of our faith and a resurrected Jesus who has gone. As John has told us, he says, I've gone to prepare a place for you. As Paul says in Thessalonians, we do not grieve as those who have no hope. We win the race. As expectation, not fear. And we prepare for that. And we face it. And we prepare to leave with peace, not bitterness. Not with a resentment that we weren't healed not with a resentment that we didn't have what other people had, but a, a peace. Some of you will know, I've probably said this recently, I can't remember all the things that you talk about when, when, you, you're with, when you, your mum dies. Um, some of you will know that my dad died in the op in a, much younger. My dad, I was 21 when my dad died. And... Um, I remember vividly leaving the hospital um, with my mum as we were transferring dad to a hospice uh, to die. He died from cancer. Um, uh, a significant thing for me is that I'm now older than he was when he died. 
and that, that's, that's quite important to me. But I remember speaking to mum about it at that moment. I was 21, and I said, Mum, are you okay? How do you feel about this? And some of you will know that my mum had a very difficult childhood, and part of that was that she lost her father when she was four years old, and that my grandmother never really recovered from that. And there was a lot of unhappiness in the home and a lot of bitterness and a lot of resentment and a lot of blame. And my mum said to me when I was 21, when we were facing the death of my father, she said, uh, I'm just grateful. She said, my prayer was always be that you as children would have your dad until you left home. I'd left home six months earlier. I was the youngest I'd gone. Mum faced and went through my dad's death, not with bitterness, but with peace. And my dad left a, a, a message for us at the funeral, which I carry in my wallet, because he said something to the minister who took the service, and it, my, the minister wrote it down as he said it. And these words are in my, my wallet. Uh, he, says, tell, he said, tell them, there is no darkness. Tell them there is only peace. It doesn't happen instantly. We prepare for it. That kind of attitude. That's my privilege to have had that from my mum and dad. And from that moment on, mum prepared for her death. She prepared precisely in terms of all the arrangements. And the last few years, particularly, we had the privilege of, resolve, of, of having conversations. There weren't any particular difficulties, but when, if we're going to die well, we need to make sure we've said all the things we need to say. That we've said, we've told people how much we love them, and we have forgiven those we need to forgive. And I had that privilege over the last few years of discovering, of talking with mum about so many things about our early lives and things that I didn't understand about my grandmother and her up, my mum's upbringing and how that shaped and affected things about my other granddad that, who was very dysfunctional and how that damaged and shaped our family. We need to have these conversations. And we need to complete and not thing, leave things undone. Have a will. Make sure we know that we're ready. We need to finish the race well. And that isn't for older people. It is for those of us that are young to start. And Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned uh, again, back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray? Basically, John is saying it was me, him. That G John describes himself as the disciple who knew he was loved. And he, he doesn't just say me. Basically, he's having, John the writer is having a conversation. And Peter says uh, to Jesus, about John, what about him? Why does he do that? Is he asking, is John going to be okay? How's John going to die? 
Now, that may well have been out of love and care and compassion for his friend. I'm going to be martyred, but is John going to be martyred? Or it may be a nosiness that he just wanted to know what was going to happen to John, and he wanted to have his life completed and be able to understand it. It may be that he was seeking reassurance. It may be that he was slightly irritated and envious, and he didn't want John to have a better thing than him. I suspect it was seeking reassurance. But Jesus says this. What is it to you? You must follow me. If we're going to finish the race well, we have to stay in our lane and not keep looking at other people because every other person's story is different. And how Jesus is going to lead our lives will be different to everybody else. And John tells us that because of this, the rumor spread among the believers that this disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say that he would not die. John's saying, I know Jesus didn't say I wouldn't die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? In other words, John isn't saying I'm going to live forever. He's he's just saying, Jesus was telling Peter, stay in your own lane. And we know that John... Uh, did die, but we know that he also was the eldest uh, disciple. He died in prison, but older in life. What does it mean to stay in our lane? If you chase uh, two rabbits, both will escape. It's us and Jesus. We need to stay in our lane. That means not comparing ourselves to others. Not looking at other people and going, if at least I haven't done what they've done, at least I'm not as sinful as them, at least I'm better than them. And sometimes we look at other people because we're gaining a false sense of superiority. And we're interested in everybody else's failures. And this was important to to Jesus 2,000 years ago and who didn't even have Facebook. Wow, we're obsessed with other people's lives. And Jesus says, what is it to you? Stay out of their lane. And often we're, we're eager to know why, how people have messed up and failed. It's called gossip. Because it makes us feel slightly better. And Jesus says, what is it to you? Follow me. And the other thing about comparing ourselves to others is the opposite thing, the other, the other side of it, which is equally damaging, which is a sense of, of envy, of jealousy. Why can't I be like them? Why can't I have their family? Why can't I have their job? Why can't I be successful and talented? Why can't I be good looking like them? Why can't I have their salary? Why can't I have their success? Why can't I have their health? Why can't I have whatever it is? The cartoon. Well, according to your sister's Facebook posting, she's having more fun than us. If only I were having as much fun as you probably think I am. Comparison is the thief of joy. Jesus says, what is it to you? Stop looking at somebody else, their family, their lifestyle, and their lives. We don't envy their call. We don't envy how God is using them. We don't envy the gifts he's given them. We say, God, how can I be used? 
And the other area of this is not to depend on other people for our faith. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago, didn't we, when we looked at the questions of life and we talked about um, leaders and we talked about when leaders fail and whether our faith is in the leader or in Jesus. And sometimes we're so invested in other people, we're living our life through them. And Jesus says, what is it to you? And maybe there is a danger that we live our life through our children or our grandchildren. And he says, I want you to follow me. What is it to you what happens? So how do we stay in the lane? We need to recognize and renounce envy and the loss of peace and gratitude that it brings when we are so focused on what we haven't got because we've seen somebody else got it, has got it. And the only one that's damaged is us. And so the first thing is to say, own it if that's going on in our lives. And we're going to use communion in a moment to deal with that and to bring our, our confession. We need to recognize and renounce nosiness where we are gaining satisfaction from the failure of others and the false comfort of superiority and the hurt we cause because we take glee. And we need to recognize and renounce when we're living life of other people. It's what would Jesus do with us this week? And so staying in our lane is to focus on our call, the gifts that we've been given, the passions that we have, and the opportunities. This week, tomorrow at 2 o'clock, Friday at 3 o'clock, Thursday at 10 in the morning, whatever it is, who has God placed us with? What is the situation that he invites us to transform? And we focus on our goals to love and to transform the place, to be a light in a difficult and dark place, to be a person of love in a place where love is broken. And we focus on our goal to end well and to glorify Jesus and to leave a legacy. So this is the end of the book. This disciple who testifies these things, who wrote them down, we know that his testimony is true. Jesus did many other things, John tells us. And if every one of them were written down, I suppose that the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. So we've come to the end of John. We've finished our race. It's been a marathon. We thought it would be a sprint, but it's been a marathon. But Jesus says, stay in your lane and finish and get the victory wreath. And in the time of communion, we're going to listen to a song which we will then move into and sing it as we close. I want to invite us to reflect on three questions. What is it that we need to work on now to glorify God in our death? What are the relationships we need to put right? What are the things we need to complete? What are the things we need to lay down? What is the bitterness or the fear that we need Jesus 
to set us free from. And who are we unhealthily focused on? Who are we distracted by? And we need to say, what is it to you? Here I am, Jesus. I'm going to follow you. And where this week is God asking us to participate in transformation now?